5: In that case, I pronounce
0: you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Today on Backroom Politics, Vladimir Putin, not only does he steal Super Bowl rings, he steals White House thunder. The Obama-Putin meeting that well, went okay. Also, the G8 meeting in Northern Ireland, we'll talk about that. The evolving immigration fight in Congress continues to get, well, confusing. Obama's sinking poll numbers and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics.
4: Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is is backroom politics to join the discussion you can call toll free 1-877-662-3713 and now the moderator of backroom politics justin russell
6: been on mute. Oh. Wow, we've been on mute.
5: Let's try this again. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Macro Politics, live from Shelly's back room, 1331, S3, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Thought we'd take us off mute for a second. Let me start off again. To my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's second congressional district. He is... Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Al.
4: Hello. You repeat yourself very well. I, I know. I didn't even
5: mention the key line shirt you're wearing. <laughs> hey, to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. To Directly across from me in the 12 o'clock position, she is the former house counsel for the Homeland Security Committee. She is the former General Counsel for the Maritime Administration, which makes her a Barack Obama appointee. She is the Honorable okay. Denise Crap. Hi, Denise. Hi, Justin. How
0: you doing?
5: Do the crystals weigh down on your neck like that? Like, my
0: weird necklace. Good uh, lord. Uh, yeah. And to my
5: to my one o'clock, he is exactly. the <laughs> former Undersecretary of Commerce, longtime Senate staffer who has served under at least at last count for president A very distinguished and charming fellow from the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hi, Alan.
3: Hello, Justin. I am so glad that we got ourselves off mute, because I was thinking about a team of people at NSA who was listening to our every word and thought they went <laughs> mute. <laughs> they, they, went went mute.
5: they found a way to go through PRISM. Uh, Carl Tubin's on his way in, but joining us right now for our first segment, he is our international expert. He is the Vice President of Eurasia Center. He is Dr. Ralph Winnie. Hi, Ralph. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be
7: with everyone.
5: Okay, let's let's talk about what's going on in Ireland, because it's bizarre. First of all, I don't even want to talk about the Super Bowl ring. We'll get to that later. But let's talk about what's going on with Obama and Vladimir Putin. It was a very, well, yeah, Bob says nothing. Bob says nothing, but what, what happened is they met. Now, what we do know is, is that apparently some sort of nuclear nonproliferation, reduction of nuclear war threat, treaty or agreement has been agreed to by both parties. However, outside of that, nothing really happened. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Ralph Winnie. Um, There were expectations from both sides that at least some of the Syrian situation would be addressed. Uh, Fell below both expectations. What's your take on what's happening with Putin and Obama regarding Syria?
7: Well, Putin has maintained that there is no evidence that the Syrian government is using chemical weapons. And he does not want, it's not in Russia's interest to remove Assad uh, because um, Assad represents one of the last major allies that the Russians have in the Middle East, especially um, considering the fact that they control the Mediterranean port in Tartus. So Putin is very adamant about uh, not allowing any kind of uh, foreign intervention into Syria. Now, that being said, he has come, along, come on board with this uh, resolution to, to, quote, stop the bloodshed in Syria. And there are eight components of this resolution, including increasing commitment to humanitarian aid, maximizing diplomatic pressure, backing a tr- transitional governing body for Syria, learning the lessons of Iraq, maintaining Syria's public institutions, working together to rid Syria of terrorists and extremists, and condemn the use of chemical weapons by anyone in Syria and allow for U.N. probe. Note, it does not mention Syrian President Assad or call him to step down. I
5: mean, Alan Moore, I mean, there's no question that the ties right now between Moscow and D.C. are not exactly Cold War level, but they're pretty frigid right now. And the relationship between Putin and Obama just is not there. Where do you see might be the disconnect in all this?
3: Well, I've never seen the connect. So uh, I don't think they had a bond that they were trying to preserve. There was some hope that they would that there, they would find one, and the president had a much ballyhooed notion of resetting, uh, in, in computer language, uh, the part the, uh, the the relationship, and that ended up being a laugh line on Saturday Night Live. Um, it's just tough. They're in a very different place. We have very different systems, and sometimes our interests conflict, and and. Uh, uh, and as Ralph said, uh, President Assad's one main friend in the world, in that you know, in that general part of the world, is uh, is Russia. They, they they the Putin's put himself in an interesting interesting position though. He said we're not persuaded by the evidence relating to chemical weapons. Well, does that mean if he come becomes to be persuaded? That then that would that would force him to do something. Meanwhile, President uh, Obama, who, uh, who talked about the, the red line uh, vis-a-vis uh, chemical weapons, has uh, has obviously considered it a red dotted line um, for quite a while. Um, but now appears to be ready to move and another three hundred million dollars in aid to, to the rebels. So he is. Finally stepping out a little farther than he has, and it's not a risk-free move. And by the
5: way, the switchboard is open right now. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us at toll-free 877-662-3713. Again, that number 877-662-3713 to join the conversation here on Backroom Politics, Uh, Congressman. Now, the administration has been waffling on Syria for a while. It's been a thorn in their international diplomatic side. Yet, even after this meeting, they still can't get the right message out as exactly how the U.S. government should intervene, support the Syrian rebels, or intervene in the and Liby- the uh, Syrian question. What is keeping the White House from being proactive?
4: Well, I obviously have uh, no idea. <clears throat> You'd have to be in the White House. It's never stopped us before. Uh, what, pardon? It's never stopped us before. Well, it's never stopped me before, but the fact is we don't know. And uh, I suspect there are people in the White House who don't know. But it's a very difficult problem. I think we all agree with that. And the, the, the president uh, is, is, is a damned if you do, a damned if you don't, damned if you do something else kind of a, of a situation. And he's trying not to do something that will make a mistake. The problem is uh, if he waits too long, inaction will be the mistake. But did but, he- but, but I don't think any of us here are ready to tell him what, what he should do about it.
5: But, Denise, we're seeing a lot of pressure from our allies in Europe as far as we. this is something we've got to get involved in. Uh, we've had several of our allies confirm the use of chemical weapons through their intelligence agencies. Uh, we've had a couple of heads of state even reach out and say, look, we've got to get involved. This is a tragic situation. Again... The Obama administration can't get out of the way. In your mind, what do you see as my I
0: don't think it's they can't get out of their way. I, what I'm betting is happening right now is they're in the planning stages. As you know, Justin, uh, you don't simply just appear in a country. There, there's a huge uh, logistics chain that has to come with you. I mean, if you want to drop in the 82nd, you want to drop in the 101st, that's fine. You can drop in those boys and girls, but they can only last about 24 or 48 hours without backup supplies. So if we're talking about going in, if we're talking about providing support, there's more than just coming in. You have to back it up. You have to bring the cargo in. You have to bring the personnel. You have to do a lot of the backroom stuff in order to get the sheet on the ground.
5: But Ralph, Ralph, even if we look at even minor intervention through the use of whether it's unmanned uh,
3: aerial vehicles,
5: whether it's the use of our own supply chains, our own logistics support, that's got to be something that's weighing on the mind of Vladimir Putin right now as far as how he's going to deal, not just right now with uh, Barack Obama, but throughout this whole GA conference.
7: Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I think that's really what brought him to uh, to an agreement on this resolution. Um, if you talk to the Russians, they, w- they will say uh, it's better to deal with the devil that you know than the devil that you don't know, and Assad is someone that They feel provides order and stability in this uh, tumultuous region. If we got rid of Assad, who knows what kind of regime would take over? Denise, uh,
0: my question though is, when are we going to come in? Because we're in June right now. If you're going to fight this type of, if you're going to provide additional support, you want to provide it in the summer and into the fall. If we're talking going into the winter, we're talking about additional displaced folks that do not have. That do not have supplies, that do not have food. And that is where you do not want to go into a battle as it was in the winter. You want to go in in the summertime.
5: But, but, I mean, humanitarian aside, Alan Moore, we've been in this war now for over a year. They've been having this civil war. Uh, at one point, the rebels were seen to have the upper hand. Now it looks like that the Assad regime has taken over some of that uh, overtaken area. This is going to be a back and forth constantly. Is the world community ready to at least step in as collectively and say, "Look, something's got to
3: give." There is no consensus around the world uh, about what to do here any more than there is here in the United States, and uh, and it's fascinating to watch watch the president evolve here. And he, we all we all remember his knocks on President Bush back in the 2008 elections. Um, and we reflect now on what's happened since. Close Guantanamo, oops, it's still open. Don't hold prisoners outside the United States. Oops, we've got a number of them in different places. No big surveillance uh of Americans. Oops, we've got an even bigger program than we thought. And we're also hearing just this last week in this interview that the president did with Charlie Rose, where he said until you've sat in the situation room of the White House and listened to all sides and all the information, you don't understand how difficult these decisions are. It reminded me of things back in the Vietnam War, from going before Nixon, from LBJ. It's, hey, this is really complicated. Trust us, trust us, trust us. Every president says it. I don't hold it against uh, Obama that he says it, but we've heard it from every president ever. At the only problem with him is he's talked about this great, grand transparency, and he was so critical of everything about about President George W. Bush, and now he's learning, and has learned, and, and is continuing to learn, oh my God, this is really hard stuff, really complicated, and it's, and it's super hard, given all the secrets involved, to get the public behind an Congressman
8: Al.
4: Among the people who don't seem to learn that are every candidate who runs for the presidency. Go back to John Kennedy and we had a missile shortage, it turned, wasn't it, I think it, it turned out that it wasn't true when he got into the White House. And so challengers will always be talking about some kind of an ideal without much information. and. Uh, I, I, I don't know, can you, can you counsel them to talk more responsibly? Well, Because you your answer is, yeah, and lose the election. Alan Moore.
3: But precisely. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to
4: behave more responsibly if it, if
3: it brings you success. I mean, it's one of the great tragedies <laughs> <laughs> of the system. We, we, we've got a population of, shall we be, be, be charitable and say, low-information voters. And these people uh, speak to the, to the lowest common denominator. They try to keep things super simple. In a very complicated world, but they do it because it works.
7: Uh, Ralph Ralph, Honey. One of the things that they discussed at the
3: G8 was this
7: idea of a peace conference to be held in Geneva as soon as possible. I think uh, now Obama and Harper should take the lead in putting together this conference and really moving the issue forward, getting people to commit to... By Harper, you
5: mean Stephen Harper, Harper, the Prime Minister of Canada? Canada.
7: Yes. Because Canada has only agreed to commit humanitarian aid but not to arm the rebels so the the G8 countries have got to come together and figure out exactly what they're going to do to uh, alleviate the crisis in Syria at this peace conference
5: but Bob Hines, when we look at the relationship between, you know, two of, let's call it the three major superpowers, we'll include China in that, but when you're looking at the relationship that Moscow has with Washington, D.C., domestically, that's got to be a little bit unnerving for a lot of the Americans that that view this as saying, wait a minute, we thought we were done with this.
9: You mean done with? Done, done with, with the,
5: you know, the Cold War, done with ah, bad really relations right. between Moscow and Washington.
9: Well, um. Well. I'm not so sure, Justin, that most Americans ever thought we were good. We have good relationships with the Russians. It's pretty hard, you know. It, uh, obviously, we're not, you know, waving nuclear weapons at each other anymore. But you take a look at that government they've got, which is a crypto, crypto, uh, bunch of, of hoodlums who are running the place and uh, making crypto, it. Crypto, crypto. I like that. Yeah, that's I mean, a new one. More, I like just, that one. Just, just so that's good. Just the kind of the kind of uh, people who are. Putting, you know, putting all their money down there in Cyprus in the banks yeah. and taking it out of the country, and uh, because who knows what was going to happen? And they're all friends of Putin's, and and uh, he is uh, he is as bad a, a leader of a country as you can possibly believe, because uh, as far as liberties and freedoms of his people right. are concerned, he's, he's he's literally a total autocrat in the worst sense of of, yeah. of, of, of an old sure. czar.
7: Ralph Winnie. Um, And this is the interesting dynamic in Russia is you have a lot of uh, young uh, people have tremendous technocratic skills. Uh, They want to work within the system, but they get very frustrated because uh, certain groups of people are profiting and everyone else has to struggle. At the same time, people remember what it was like after the fall of communism and you had democracy. Uh, people's life life savings got got wiped out did, when they I revalued mean,
5: the currency. We, but did we really actually see democracy in a Russia well, post-Gorbachev? Uh,
7: the Russian view of democracy is Boris Yeltsin and the problems with the currency revaluation and losing their life savings. So they are more willing to adopt an autocratic kind of government like Putin if they're able to uh, make money and to live... Is a there business. a
5: renewed nationalistic sense in, in Russia?
7: I think so, certainly among younger people. Um, and one of the things that upset the Russians was, the w- was what happened in Libya. After the fall of Qaddafi, um, Russians really don't have any influence there anymore. I mean, the people are very nationalistic. They don't like other sources coming in and telling them what to do. At the same time, they don't want their government to take to take advantage of them. So it's kind of an interesting paradox there. he's
0: correct? The question I, I wanted to know is, yeah. who is Putin talking to? And the, the reason I, I say that is, you know, for the most of us, we have significant others. You know, if you've had a bad day, you're going to go to your wife, your husband, your partner and say, I've had a really shitty day. And let me tell you why. And your partner... Family show. Oh, no, yeah. Family show. And, 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 there, and you're going to... Able to talk to somebody. Well, we just heard that Putin and his wife of 30 plus years are divorcing. Yes. So my question is, who is Putin now talking to? Because if it's not his wife, then who's providing him with counsel when he goes home and says, "I've had a really bad day"? Well,
5: this—I mean, this brings up a very, very interesting question. Philip or when, when, when we look at who Putin is surrounding himself with, he's really never come out of power. I mean, there's a lot of people that say. Medvedev, who was the previous president, was just a puppet of Putin behind the scenes. Have we really seen a truly transparent Putin administration that even the Soviets would embrace?
3: Or no, the uh, no, would embrace? no, 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 There's nothing nothing transparent about his inner circle. The only thing that's transparent to the world is that this guy has got power and he's not going to let it go. And if he finds uh, that there are... Uh, very wealthy Russians who get crossways with him then he will put them in jail and, and basically throw, the, throw away the keys so he, he, he really uh, does exercise uh, autocratic power as, as, as Bob says but he, he the, the big problem right now for, for the public the Russian public is they were better off before the great grand masses at least had food and electricity, a health system that kind of worked. And many of them are today worse off than they were before. And so they could, they, if it comes to feeling comfortable and safe versus this notion of democracy, which they have never experienced and don't really understand, they will opt for... Safety and security, rather than democracy. That doesn't mean they wouldn't like to be more expressive. Television, the internet, Western music, movies—this stuff opens up the world to them. But if they don't have food and it's and it's and it's cold, and the schools don't work, and they're sick, and there's no treatments, that trumps everything. I mean, are we are we seeing a resurgence, maybe, in these crap of people
5: longing even for the Gorbachev Soviet Union?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I agree with what Alan just said. When you can say, hey, I've got something in my stomach, then yes, you're going to be happy. If you're thinking about how am I going to be able to feed my kids tomorrow or the day after, I'm really not going to be concerned about democracy. I'm going to be more focused on how do I pay my bills and how do I get my kids fed.
7: But the the problem is the wealth is all concentrated in the hands of individuals. In the oligarchs. oligarchs. And that makes everything problematic. If you're trying to run a small business uh, having to be able to navigate through the system. And more and more younger people are getting frustrated and they're trying to go west
4: and set up operations. Al Swift, as we've been talking about Putin in several different ways today, uh, it's reminded me that this guy came from the heart of the KGB. Now, this is, this is not a guy who uh, is likely to want to lead for democracy he may try to show some lip service to it as he needs to. But in fact, you probably can't find a, a, a head of a country that is probably less, in terms of his own views, uh, less democratic than, than, than he yeah. is. But
5: Bob Hines, all that considered, right now we've got what amounts to a Mexican standoff in Moscow and in here in Washington. Is there somebody that can possibly come out of this looking good in the eyes of the rest of the global community as so-and-so is the bigger man, whether it's Putin or Obama?
9: No, I don't, you know, uh, the president has done what he can do. Um, you know, Putin basically uh, rejects it. Uh, you can't do anything about it. That's it. I mean, that's the relationship. The relationship is on the one hand, you're way over on the left side, the other side, you know, you, you're, you're too far apart. that They can't they don't have any mutual ground to stand on. They don't have any place to even begin to stand on. They have two totally different views of how to run a country. They have totally different views of, of what the world interest is. And and the Russians uh, are just not going to be helpful. But, Ralph, when, he,
5: when we look at who, going back to the question of who's... You know, talking to Putin. Right. The same question can be saying is is who are we talking to? Are we using anybody as intermediaries to deal with Moscow? Whether it's London, Ottawa, Paris, uh, Berlin, I think we've we've tried
7: for, uh, to work through the European community, um, but again, it, it hasn't been successful. And I think, unfortunately, it comes down to the fact that Putin doesn't respect Obama, and that's very very disappointing. You can just see it in the body language and, and their interaction, and it's got What's going to have to happen is it's going to have to be in Putin's best interest, or shown to be in his best interest, to uh, come around on the issue of Syria and the chemical weapons. Right now, he's not willing to budge. He feels the best interest of the Russian people is to keep um, Assad in power.
5: Alan Moore, is, is this is this a mutual respect deal? Is there a lack of mutual respect between Obama and Putin that could cause a little bit of the tension that we're seeing right you know, now?
3: Person, personal uh, relationships matter, but I don't think that's the key to this. I don't think that if these guys are. Had uh, become drinking buddies, or played some tennis together, or something, or, or some some basketball. We're not going to uh,
5: see another reagan Gorbachev uh, relationship it, ever again. It, well, we,
3: you know, it, it's the, 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 they 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 don't have the time or the opportunity to be together to get to know each other. We don't trust Putin. Just listen to the conversation around the table, which reflects our views. Obama doesn't trust Putin. The White House doesn't trust Putin, it, and and Putin doesn't trust us it's not that we can't talk to to him we've got we've got senior diplomats we've got second mm-hmm. channels third channels fourth channels direct direct uh, conversation they know what we want we kind of know where they're coming from. We just disagree and he's Re, Putin has looked at what's happened in Arab Spring across northern Africa and says so Why do I want to associate myself with another Egypt? That's a god-awful mess. And it looks like Assad is prevailing. Assad has been winning in recent months. And and Putin thinks, I think this guy is going to prevail. He's going to hang on. Why do I want to be part of something that totally falls apart? If it totally falls apart... I can blame them and if and a facade comes together oh my god i'm even I've got an even stronger relationship with him, and the fact that a hundred thousand people have died and around three million people have been displaced is not something that seems to trouble Mr. Putin all that much, and that is a, a difference i think from from where he comes from and where these uh, the, the rest of the western
5: leaders a little collateral no. damage yeah, then it almost seems that you know we've got tensions with Beijing right now sit now seems more evident than ever there's maybe a third front in Moscow does this pose another diplomatic challenge to foggy bottom the State Department and the administration to keep a
0: collective global community together especially with the global economy we're dealing with absolutely uh, I mean it, you can only spend so much time on each issue so you from their perspective, they're going to want to put one of these issues to bed, and the more issues you put on their plate, the less they're going to be able to focus on it. Not only that, focus on it, you're not going to be able to resolve it. And, and the other part of this is when you talk about resolutions, what is the president's priority? I mean, is the priority going to be Russia? Is it going to be Beijing? Are we, you know, switching to the, the Pacific uh, thrust? Are we going to be focusing on South America? I mean, for him, it, it, a lot of this is going to come down to, I want to solve this, but how is this going to impact my legacy? And what is my legacy going to be? And do I care that my legacy is going to be Russia? Or am I going to care that it's really more about China? Interesting comments. Well, we're going to take a quick break
5: here. When we come up, oh, we've got a caller right now on the line. Caller in the 918 area code. You're on the air with Backroom Politics. Hey, again. It's Dakota Wood. Here. Dakota Wood. How are you doing? It's our friend Dakota Wood, U.S. Marine Corps. How are you doing, Colonel?
1: Uh, doing doing show. Show.
5: Well, I'll tell you what, we, we saw you call in. Wh- what are your thoughts going on?
1: Um, you know, uh, no, I'll tell you, the, uh, the, the operations community in this phase easy. that says you can't search trust, meaning in in a moment of crisis, you can't automatically, magically appear a trusting relationship knowing who you're working with. You have to build that over time. And what the administration has done is not build the bridges uh, during times pre crisis so that when you get to moments like Syria or a summit with Putin or what have you, there's no pre existing relationship. And so you're going to have the consequences of the results that we're seeing now. Yeah,
5: but Dakota, I got I to ask you you've been around uh, the whole Russian question for a long time. When we when we see what's going on between Putin and Obama, let's let's face it. Washington has had to deal with Putin for, at last count, 16 years of power. It, it's not like we don't know the devil that we're talking to.
1: Well, it, it, the people who are currently in positions of power have not dealt with Putin for 15 years. They're the new guys on the scene that have been wholly distracted by other issues. So you've got long-time watchers like the great folks in your panel here, um, and you've got people who have been engaged in the, the geopolitical scene. But when you have a group that comes into power with a different ideology and they feel it's all personality-based and you've been running on campaign rhetoric, and then you come into the hard reality of the way the world really works, hardball politics, uh, you know, a KTB operative, uh who only appreciates you know strength, uh never compromising, all that stuff. Uh it's a different game. And this team that's in place has not played this game before.
5: Wow. That that's an interesting take Dakota. Hey Dakota, we're up on the break right now. Uh appreciate you calling in my friend. Yeah, it's good talking to you. We'll have you on soon. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to go to a break. When we come back, always oh, he's going to have Dakota calling. He, guy's just, well, he's my friend. Anyway, this is, um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little G8 politics. Uh, the Gang of Eight are uh, just, can, uh, just finished their meetings over in Northern Ireland. We're going to talk about that and what the big outcomes from that were. When we come back, this is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller. Lulu back in town. And I I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best Cigar Menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 Little Petite Girly Flavored Cigars all the way up to Opus X Lost City They have a cigar for everybody Mild, medium, strong, heavy However you want to smoke it It's available here at Shelly's Back Room
8: Come in, have Bob, Nah
5: Or any one of the girls Show you what the right cigar might be For your taste that evening Again, Shelly's Back Room 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C.
8: As Bob likes to put it It is definitely the place to be You can tell the mailman not to call. I ain't coming home until the fall. And again, I might not get back home at all. Lula's back in town. Yeah. The fall. And then again I might not get home at all Sooner's back in town Oh, that woman's back in town Oh, my, 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 my And we're back
5: here live In Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live On Blog Talk Radio From Shelley's Backroom 1331 Ash Street In the heart of our nation's capital Washington, D.C. And I'm your moderator Justin Russell If you want to join the conversation You can call in Toll free 877 877- six six two three seven one three. Uh we're gonna talk a little GA economic politics right now. Uh, you may have missed it. Didn't get a whole bunch of press, but important nonetheless, the global eight economic powers got together in Northern Ireland over the weekend and talked everything from Syria to economic issues to tax evasion. Right. It was a huge it was a huge, huge issue if you're in the financial communities. But Ralph a little bit of a, uh back step here. What is, uh, what is the G8?
7: Okay. It's a group of eight countries that come together to uh, solve economic and political issues. Um, and this year, the, uh, while Syria dominated the meeting, tax evasion transparency were the themes of the summit, and the leaders agreed to a series of commitments, such as sharing info, and changing the rules to let to let companies ship their profits across the well, border.
5: Before we get into that, okay. Alan Moore, talk to me a little bit. Why, is it, why should we be concerned about the G8 getting together? Why should this be on our radar screen?
3: Well, it's not that often that you have uh, the the top seven plus Putin. He, he Russia doesn't really qualify economically to be in this group, and there are there are countries that say, wait a minute, why is he there, for gosh sakes? But there's a G20 that really makes more sense. But the smaller the group, the greater the focus on particular individuals. They get together once a year. They move around country to country. Last year they were in the U.S. at Camp David. Um, and uh, the world just kind of watches. These are these are the big guns, uh, politically speaking, uh, of the world. And uh, now... What they do, what they say, is, uh, is something that's of really less interest almost than the, than the People magazine aspects of who's doing what. One of the big stories out of out of Ireland was that Michelle Obama and the Obama daughters went and had uh, lunch at an Irish pub with uh, U2 lead singer Bono, his wife and children. So that gets visibility kind of beyond the what's going on behind the scenes at the G8. This is not a time for major decisions to be made, Uh, although ten years ago this week President George W. Bush, Bush 43, went to the G8 and said the United States has just passed a law to provide fifteen billion dollars over five years to fight HIV AIDS. What are you guys going to kick in? today at the State Department they were celebrating that 10th anniversary um, so sometimes there will be a particular subject right. food and nutrition uh, was was elevated uh, a couple of years ago there, there, there may be a kind of look at the third world and how are we going to help them I think the problems of the West and the uh, the major developed countries and the the economic turndown has forced more inward thinking about uh, about economies rather than how are we going to help the little guys. Let's let's get ourselves stronger, and then there will be more uh, ability to help the other. Well, guys.
5: Ralph, when he, uh, Alan brings up a good question, you know, when we look at the global recession that just occurred, having the global eight get together uh-huh. in one spot always good. Was there a, a significant economic uh, coalition that came together during this meeting that? may have stood out? Um, really,
7: while, while it was tax evasion and transparency, really the Syrian issue kind of predominated. But they did come together to talk about, um, agreeing, they agreed to a proposal where oil, gas, and mining companies have to report what they pay to governments. And there's been the, all of this talk about increased transparency and accountability um, to stop companies from shifting offshore. Uh, their profits and making them more accountable to government. You know,
5: so, Denise, when we look at the tax issue, you know, everybody was bringing up in in Northern Ireland the question of tax transparency, tax evasion, Uh, you know, everybody starts looking at, for example, Britain. David Cameron took a lot of heat because a lot of the Commonwealth uh, crown components, whether it's Aruba, the Caymans, or throw in Caribbean nation here, fall under his jurisdiction, Yet we have a Delaware. There seems to be a lot of hypocrisy when we talk about who's evading what, and you still have a Swiss government that just voted down in their own lower house. We're not giving out the accounting records, or we're not giving out the financial records of Swiss bank clients. Where does the hypocrisy begin and end?
0: Uh, well, I think, you know, I'm going to use one of Congressman Nelson's favorite phrases, what, there's hypocrisy in the world? <laughs> never. No, never, never. Um, but you also forgot to bring up, you know, some other countries that are becoming much more friendly to those who don't want to be as transparent. I mean, you have the Singapore's of the world. You have other countries that um, are saying, hey, you know what, if you want to give us your money, we won't provide the details. So I'm sure that was also in the back of the mind of folks, you know, like what's going on with Germany and so on. The other thing. You know, what are the others doing to attract our money? But it, but it seems, Emma, more that, that you know David
5: Cameron was taking some
0: you know some minor
5: hits as far as hey the crown needs to crack down on some of this stuff. Is that fair to David Cameron in, in the UK?
3: Hey, this is the world of politics. It's, <laughs> it's not a matter of what's fair and and and, and what isn't. Is this um, a
5: situation of there's no crying in baseball?
3: <laughs> no, there's a lot of crying in baseball, but but. Uh, but 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 the macho notion is no crying in baseball. Um, the uh, I, I was just uh, I was just looking here and I was reminded, r- reminding myself that that, that the uh, that the, uh, the, the, the actually the G8 I think is group of eight and it stands for uh, or it's it's the eight well it's the seven it's the G7 but take Russia aside and you got the seven largest democracies but you've got uh you've got three other countries of the top 11 economically speaking that aren't there Brazil and India uh and one other one uh, China of course um and uh so it's these western democracies plus Russia and uh but it's got a history now of coming together since the 1970s when uh when the French first Drew together. I think it was a G6 at the time. Right. So you you get momentum behind it, though it gets some visibility. And sometimes, if you can get that that much power behind a few ideas, uh, especially if they're not world changing ideas, this is not the United Nations, and the the UN be- has become highly dysfunctional. So it's a smaller group. Again, the G20 is really a a, a more meaningful group of countries in terms of of, of the, the, the broader base: of which India, Brazil, and China are all absolutely—they're all there along with a bunch of others. It really is the largest way.
7: Roughly. Well one of one of the issues that came up is the uh, U.S. and the EU are going to enter into negotiations uh, to put together a trade deal, and that's going to be interesting to see how that moves forward and whether it will conflict with the uh, the EU and the Canadian uh, uh, deal that's uh, kind of in the works. So um, that's one of the things that uh, Stephen Harper is very, very concerned about.
5: When, Bob Hines, when, when, we, when we talk about the G8 getting together and we look at a tenuous point in the global community, i.e. Syria, uh, what, is, is, is this little fraternity of G8 so exclusionary that we're not really getting the full sense of what the global community Really should get involved in, or a bad way to get a minor alliance together?
9: Well, obviously you're talking about the, the G8 is major, major, is or major economic c- c- countries. They are, but the G20, as Alan said, have have much more authority because it pulls in a larger group. And you know, you, we have a small, a smaller group as the G8 is. There, I cannot see them having any influence at all as a group, just that group, on dealing with the Syrian situation. you yet at a broader base. When I was
7: there in 2011, the, the major issue was, of course, the Arab Spring and what could the EU do to help these uh, burgeoning de- democratic movements that were occurring in, in, the, uh, in the Middle East. And there was a commitment to provide financing and, tra- and training to help these young activists to try and achieve the next level. But it doesn't seem like any of that really materialized down the line.
5: But, Alan Moore, everything going on, is the G8 now becoming obsolete, or is this something that's critical to our foreign policy and the foreign policy of our partners? It's neither
3: one. It's not obsolete. It's got a history. It's, a, it's, some, it's a, It gives everybody a chance to, to focus uh, what should be on our agenda, where can we find something that we can produce, that we can talk about afterwards, but it's not crucial. It's just uh,
4: not big enough. Congressman Al. When when we talk about all the places that there is war, I really think that when any countries get together to talk peacefully about problems, uh, that's a good thing. Whether something comes out of it, for example, the one that Alan used, uh, the, the is fight against the Arab Spring? Arab Spring. Oh, uh, what happened was they made some decisions and then everything changed, and so their their decisions kind of got blown up. But I I'm I'm all for anybody talking to anybody uh, rather than the alternative. Better talking than shooting. Absolutely.
5: Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going come back. I want to talk about a uh, development that happened over the weekend. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Iran politics. There was an election in Iran. There was a little bit of an upset. Uh, Outsiders are looking at it very closely. And Washington's looking at it with a skeptical eye. This is Backroom Politics Live on Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's back room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250, from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners. Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Is Janet. Great piece of music. This is Backroom Politics Live on Law Talk Radio from Shelley's back room in Washington, D.C. We're going to talk uh, real quickly about uh, the election in Iran that just happened uh, in a surprise move. We don't have to deal with Ahmadinejad anymore. Those little members-only jackets are now gone. Thank God. But now we have a new person in play. Uh, Hassan Rouhani, who is largely viewed in the global community as a moderate uh, inside Iran. Uh, he is, the, I believe, the former mayor of Tehran, has now become the new Iranian president. He still has to answer to a cleric that is dominating some really, or wielding some really impressive power, but Rouhani's got the global community kind of saying, all right, maybe we can talk with this guy. Alan Moore... We don't know a lot about this guy. We're getting news coming out as, and more and more intelligence about him. But is this something that we can be skeptically looking, you know, hey, there might be light at the end of the tunnel, we might be able to deal with this
3: guy? Well, yeah, I mean, beggars can't be choosers. And, and, and we're pleased that it's a guy who, who is perceived as, as more moderate than others. And he had a pretty convincing victory. He won 50%. There was no runoff. And that was a surprise. Um, what it means, who knows? As you point out, there's a an ayatollah who's uh, ultimately uh, co- carries uh, the, most of the cards. But we all watched Ahmadinejad uh, be the public face, often of Iran. He was frightening. He was provocative. He was disgusting. Um, and uh, and ultimately, he also became a subject of fodder for. Uh, For Saturday Night Live, never a good thing if you're trying to be a a serious world leader. We're just desperate in the case of Iran of finding people we can talk to, Um, and uh, so we once again uh, are hopeful, but I'm hoping it's not like uh, Lucy and and Charlie Brown with the football. That one more time. Lucy puts <laughs> the football the down, and we think now's our chance to kick a field goal. Oops! She snatches it away. Congressman Al, but I think we're
4: we're a little naive if we think that every time some something in another part of the world that is very different from ours uh, moves in a moderate direction, to think that they're oh, now they agree with us. I mean, Ar- Arab Spring had a, a lot of that. Oh, now Egypt's going to be a democracy, and now Libya's going to be a democracy. But
2: nonsense.
4: Uh, it's not in the culture. It's not in the history. And there are going to be different kinds of problems, and maybe they will be easier problems. I don't know. But there are going to be problems.
7: Right. But Ralph Yeah, and I, I think the Iranian people have really uh, su- uh, been suffering horribly, not only of the repression, but also economically and um finally you have this person who is supposed to be a moderate but it's going to be very interesting to see if uh he will uh go along with supporting the UN resolutions and uh, uh take take a a less confrontational approach in dealing with Israel and the West
8: Bob
9: Hines The gentleman who has won the election is only a moderate right uh if you look at the other six candidates (laughs) who were all extreme, you know, Kemeni, right-wing, you know, autocratic, religious structure government that they've got. The reality is, he's just a little bit to their left, and he could not have run for office if he wasn't approved by the clerics, because they're the ones who approve the slate of candidates who were allowed to run. And uh, he was the most moderate uh, in the view of, of where Iranian politics are, uh, which is way, way over on, on one side of the coin. It's, it's, it's I would not see him as anyone who is going to uh, make any significant changes in any of the policies, domestic or foreign, that the has want. Denise Kraft.
0: You're right, I mean, he is definitely more moderate than the others, and the issue for the everyday person in Iran is going to be, how does this change impact my ability to feed my children? I realize I keep talking about the ability to feed your children, but when the price of bread goes up, and the price of your basic food staples go up, and you're not able to pay for them, then that's what you're going to be focusing on, and that's what you're going to be putting pressure on your leaders and saying, I want to feed my children, especially when the majority of the population in Iran is younger. And I believe it's 30 at this point in time. Right. So they're not going to remember what happened in 1979. They weren't alive for yeah, that. Yeah, but, but when, we, when we
5: look at a possible new regime, a more moderate regime coming into the presidency, not necessarily replacing the Ayatollahs, there's still a lot of hurdles that have to be overcome before we even remotely think about, as a global community, taking back the sanctions that are
0: impacting these people. And that's young people. what, right. That's what we're going to be thinking about here in the United States. But the day-to-day person in Iran is going to say, okay, well, does this mean the United States is going to lift the sanctions? I, mean, I, I can think, as a mother, that's my first question. Will I be able to feed my children? And
5: that's what going to ask. But Ralph, when he, I mean, how long do we have to look at somebody like Hussein before we look at, you know, possibly addressing the issue of, retracting some of these restrictions that are against the Iranian people right now? Well, I think the
7: ball is in their court. Um, let him, uh, let's see what he's going to propose. I mean, if it's just the more of the same, then no, we don't let the sanctions. But if if he comes forth with, with uh, genuine offers of, of trying to um, create a better uh, political and economic uh, situation in Iran, outreach to the West, then, then certainly we Here. will work with them. But the key is it has to come from their end.
5: Alan Moore, when we, when we look at the issues that are facing, I mean, this guy's taking the helm of a very unstable nuclear program in the eyes of the global community. Is nuclear the top issue that he's going to have to show some moderation on, or are there other ways he can show goodwill to the global community?
3: That, it's all about that issue. That issue is number one, number two, number three, number ten. It is the issue, it's the whole reason... That uh, the rest of the world is uh, sometimes harming itself by uh, being by participating in these sanctions, and uh, so that that is the issue. And the question is, what will this man, what are his inclinations, what, and what ability is he going to have to make changes? And that's where the uh, the Ayatollah really holds the trump cards. But
5: Al Swift, you were. Uh you were here in Washington during the 1979 Iranian hostage crisis. Uh, Bob Hines, same with you. When, when we look back at the old Iran under Ayatollah Khomeini, and we've seen the progression even into Ahmadinejad, do, is there a reason for us to have some hope that this guy could be the moderate that we're looking for to help us increase stability in the region?
4: A tiny <laughs> yes, but keeping in mind that the important guy is the religious cleric, is Khomeini, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, th- that guy hasn't shown me much reason for hope uh, since '79.
5: Bob Hines, does, does, does the Ayatollah have to go before we see any sort of developments in bringing moderation to
9: the Islamic State of Iran? Well, I would like to say no. He can change his views. But he's been sitting there in charge for over a decade now, Uh, and uh, his views have not changed, and I don't expect them to change. I think that it's nice that the the gentleman who won the election is the most, quote, moderate, because maybe at least there'll be some voice that isn't saying, yes, yes, Yemen, yes, Yemen, you're absolutely right. I'm glad maybe, but I don't think it's going to happen.
0: crap. I think the problem that he is going to have, the cleric, is that in 79, he could control the message. The ISIL community could control the message because he was in charge. He didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have Instagram. He didn't have Pinterest. He didn't have all of these means for, for social media. And so they're going to have to overcome the social media, which is something that they cannot stop. You cannot shut this down. Like you can shut down, you know, taking away your magazine when you come into the country.
4: Congressman, now, uh, question: <clears throat> Will the fact that a moderate won an election, and it was a bit of a surprise, will that have any effect at all on the uh, on the clerics?
3: Alan Moore, uh, I,
4: uh,
3: I think the answer is yes. It will have some effect. Will it change his decision making? Will it change his behavior? We don't know. That's really the question, but. But, but this has got to be, you know, if, if we were, the West was surprised. I'm guessing he was also surprised and he thought, huh. It's okay, almost, so it's
5: so almost the, like Robert Redford in the candidate. The public is,
3: is speaking out here. They have suffered significant deprivation because of these sanctions. And they are in this small way or, or, or not so small way saying, enough. We want some change. We want some things restored to us that have not been available now for years.
5: Alan, are, are we seeing what could be the beginning of a velvet revolution inside Iran? Are we seeing a more empowered young population you know, in, the Iranian in the Iranian electorate?
3: We don't know how much power they have, as, as Denise accurately points out. They're now in touch with the world like they have never been before, and they have been able—they had this chance to send this signal inside the country. So we'll wait and see, and we'll try to nudge. We'll have to be careful. We—we we don't want to embrace the new guy because that will—that <laughs> will destroy his credibility. Yes. Um, but we'll have to move delicately, step by step, and we can still be hopeful. Rob Winnie. And uh, Rob Winning.
7: What's very interesting is that the Chinese have been very active in Iran for years. Not only uh, buying the oil, but also developing infrastructure projects. They built some the uh, major subway system there, and they've indirectly had an influence in terms of connecting with the people who, who are. Who it's all mostly now it's about the economics and, like Denise said, being able to feed their kids. And there's an there's sort of an. Uh, an idea that, that the Iranian government should adopt the Chinese model, where you have the controlled, ordered system, but everyone can um, prosper e- economically. And that's going to be interesting to see how that starts to develop.
5: Congressman now your comment. Yeah. What I wanted to do
4: is, is if the election might have some effect on the Ayatollah. <clears throat> we mentioned all these new social media things that the young people understand and are using, and my question is, the Ayatollah is an old man. Does he even understand... That. Denise Kraft.
0: This Ayatollah may not, but the next one right. will. Because you know this one's been in power now for 10 years. The other one was in power for a good 20 mm-hmm. years before that. So there's a lot of backroom politicking going on saying. Shameless plug. Hey, nice
5: I, job, Denise. And, and, and <laughs> saying,
0: you know, who is going to be the next one? And, and there's, there's Denise
5: Kraft. Bob
9: Hines, final word. Final word. I would, I'm reminded of what Mr. Ronald Reagan said uh, at one point trust but verify. <laughs> We'll see. I think if there's any change, I expect it to be extremely slow and uh, very, very controlled. And I'd be surprised if much happens. Well,
5: we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, Ralph Woody, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate your perspective. Enjoy being on the show. When we come back, we're going to talk immigration. The fight gets more and more confusing, and they're looking at Boehner. This is Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom... They think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Back Room, Shelley's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings. Famous campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the Campfire Wings. Best wings in the city, bar none. I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll, served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. here live at Shelly's room, 1331 H Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live. I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. And the Background Politics here, gang, is here talking about immigration. The immigration question continues to bottle the minds of Congress, and it gets more and more interesting every day. Hey, when we look at uh, what's happening lately, Speaker John Boehner now has got the big target on him. Uh, Bob Hines, Speaker Boehner, is saying there's not a real chance that we're going to see any immigration bill that can obviously pass through the House. We're also seeing a situation where a lot of the pressure is going on the Speaker to get this passed and get it through and get it as showing a sign of, hey, we can function. How much pressure is actually on the Speaker right now?
9: Well, I, there's a lot of pressure, uh, generally speaking, <laughs> particularly from the Tea Party people. Uh I think that the, and one of the reasons the House has not yet developed the bill fully is because I think they're holding back. I think, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Speaker wasn't saying, let's wait a little bit. Uh, I think the fundamental issue is right now is uh, border security. Uh, that's the problem the Senate has. I think it's the main problem that the House has, at least as a, in, a, in a sense of the issues they're talking about. And uh, I don't expect to see it uh, uh, come to any fruition uh, until well after the Senate moves. And if, they, if the Senate moves, I think the House will probably find a way to do uh, to do something, but I don't know what that is at this stage.
5: But Congressman Alley, Politico is reporting in a great story by uh, Rebecca Elliott that uh, Congressman uh, Rohrabacher, out of California, Republican, uh, has pretty much called his speakership... In the question, saying that you allow this to come to the floor or even remotely pass, your speakership is in jeopardy. Have you seen that kind of tactic
4: coming from a, a member of
5: your own caucus before?
4: I've seen things like that from Rohrbacher before, uh, and uh,
5: yeah, they're 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 they're. they're
4: were some examples of a little rebellion in the ranks uh, with Speaker Foley uh, and, and some others. It happens occasionally. Uh, but uh carries weight on the right. He doesn't carry weight with, with any any of the moderates, so to the extent that the Republicans have uh, some tendencies toward moderation uh, Rohrbacher isn't going to have a lot of influence with that. Alan Moore. Well what, what my understanding, my take on what Rohrbach has done is that he was
3: responding to the, the the speaker's comments in the recent days that immigration is a high priority and we want to move this uh, we wanna move this issue. And then Rohrbacher came back and said, If you move this issue without a majority of Republicans supporting it, your leadership would be at risk. And, and Bader this afternoon said we want a majority of Republicans to support this bill so I, I don't see a lot of news yet on this front he says it's a priority and he wants a majority of Republicans to support it the Senate is engaged moving forward um, you know you if the Senate is trying to finish this up before they leave at the end of next week to go out for a for a, a week or ten days it the, over the 4th of July. The House won't act before that, but there is a group of people in the House that's wrestling with some of this stuff. They can pass a bill. that would look very different from the Senate bill. Um, I'm not saying they will, but they could. And the ultimately, ultimately this is going to have to be sorted out, uh, assuming the House is able to pass a bill in a conference. Uh, and then that will be the really interesting one because, because uh, the question for Boehner will be, in a compromise bill with the Senate, can I get a majority, and uh, how will he handle that? But we're a long way away from that. Carl Toobin. You
2: know, the, the interesting thing is is that is that this is one area where a few, a few Democrats and a few Republicans in the House have been talking for weeks and trying to break something up. Uh, Congressman Belar was on uh, TV uh, a couple of days ago talking about this. The congressman uh, from- uh, From Florida. From, from Houston, Florida. The one from San Antonio, the Democrat. Oh, uh,
5: uh, Castro. Castro
2: has been uh, has been taking the leadership, among others, on this whole thing. So it's kind of a real disappointment for him to just to say no. And uh, uh, I think it's going to have reper- repercussions.
4: Congressman Al. Rohrbach's warning to the speaker only looks at half of the Speaker's problem. The other half is is the Republicans have to maintain the House for him to maintain the Speakership. And if they mishandle immigration, it is entirely possible that uh, that could put uh, the, the Republican majority in jeopardy because uh, the Hispanics and their friends, which would be a lot of other minorities and what have you, uh, may just rise up and say, you don't care about us, and so we don't care about you.
5: But Al- Alan Moore, you know, Rohrabacher is just one voice that we're hearing, and it's getting a lot of attention, but uh, he, he, it seems like he is describing a sense in the House of House Republicans that this is going to be a, a major theme inside <laughs> the caucus. Does that put the Senate bill at danger right now?
3: The Senate bill is the Senate bill. They're gonna they're not paying attention to the House. They're just trying to get a bill through the Senate that has sixty votes. They're they, they could care less at the moment about the House and the Speaker's problems. Um, but eventually the Speaker will have to I mean this is a decision he's had to confront several times now. Will he bring a bill before the before the House? That, that does not have a majority of the majority that doesn't have at least fifty percent plus one of uh, of the republicans that is a challenge I, I, I did want to say something about about al's comment um it, 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 it is certainly true that this immigration issue is is important to a fair number of Americans including a fair number of hispanics but but i've seen some some poll data about the issues that Hispanics care the most about. This is not it. Uh, they care the most about the same issues that all Americans care about, which is economy, jobs, education, health care. That doesn't mean you could ignore the immigration issue or that you can say it doesn't matter or keep them out, but, but as, as, as has been pointed out, um, where different families are or groups are on this issue depends on where they are in the society, what their standing is. Are you harboring, hiding, concealing, worrying about relatives? Or are you saying, wait a minute, these people are going to take my job. It's not a simple black and white issue for Hispanics any more than it is for everybody else,
4: even though it is more important writ large for Hispanics well, and I, well and you know, I for now I, I, I agree with you. I am just saying that that I think some Republicans should have their head examined for going down this road and I, I start with Pete Wilson uh, who was governor of California who kind of teed up this whole thing a, a number of years ago. Why in the world would you want to take a, a, an ethnic group that is essentially conservative? and insult it, abuse it, and treat it the way they're treating these issues. It just seems to be crazy politics on the part of the Republicans. Bob
9: Lines. You saw the way, you know, as you say, the governor of California teed it up, and he hit the ball in the ocean. He did nothing. He, did, he, blew, his own, he blew his own career. I mean, it's, it's an issue that is... I think Alan is right. It, on a day-to-day conversation basis, most Hispanics are working, thinking about the same issues everybody else is thinking about. But, but, Alan, but, oh. but as a, but as a, as an issue that unites an awful lot of people about saying, "Hey, we got to fix this problem. This is unfair the way it is." It's it's a it's an emotional issue, which I think will have a, will have a significant impact. The way it's handled by the Republican Party is gonna have a very significant impact upon how successful the party is in future years.
5: But Alan Moore when when we look at the immigration when we look at the immigration question, particularly right now with Harry Reid announcing today he's trying to file a cloture motion uh to get a vote on this bill, uh one of the big losers it seems in this deal seems to be Marco Rubio, one of the key components of the, the Gang of Eight. Uh he's taking hits of He's an insider, he's playing beltway politics with an immigration issue that's much broader. Is, is he really at risk right now of
3: being a rising star in
5: the party or
3: is, is this something he can escape?
5: You know,
3: it's a good question and, and I don't think any of us know the answer yet. Um, he has got to be really careful. He was a darling of the right He had pulled off a big upset in Florida. He's still something of a darling. Uh, He's shown some courage to uh, involve himself so deeply into this issue because it is not a risk-free matter. It is not risk-free in Florida, and it is not risk-free among conservative Republicans. Having said that, he's an attractive, smart, clever guy. It's too soon for us. To know whether this was a uh, this was a, a, a risk worth taking or not. Carl Toobin.
2: I think I think on his part he believes in this, and it's a gamble. <clears throat> if the Senate passes the bill, and he has is, he, is, he, he has said he likes ninety five percent of the bill, and if he votes for it, he becomes I think a bigger person than than he has been, and maybe and, and you know. You can do things, people get angry at you, but if you're popular and if you're good they're going to come back.
5: But Bob Hines, when we look at this going to the House and eventually it looks like Harry Reid's got enough votes in the House to get this, in the Senate to get it over to the House. This thing goes to the House, we're talking about a whole new front on a whole new war. With immigration being such a huge priority domestically, on the domestic side, can politics, can politics really survive the pressure of the electorate to get something passed, get something definitive, and get it through what is looked at as a law jam in the House, particularly
9: with Rohrabacher's comments? Well, if the Senate is able to pass a bill with 60-plus votes, if the, and I think the biggest test is, there's a, the, the biggest looks like stop point right now is the the amendment by uh, John Cornyn, the uh, deputy leader in the Senate for the Republicans, whose um, uh, whose border security legislation proposal is is seen as a a a step too far as far as a lot of the people who support the bill are. And Rubio, and uh, I will now ruin my my, uh, Tell Me a Story, Rubio is working very hard, a little bit outside the gang of Eight still a part of it, trying to work to find working with Cornyn, trying to find a way to soften or broaden amend his approach, Cornyn's approach, in order that he can get that Cornyn can support the bill and that will push it over in the Senate. And Rubio is, is on a is on an extremely difficult position because he's a little bit outside his his, his his eight, his group of eight, and at the same time he is he is working with somebody who has not been friendly. And he's trying to solve the problem. It's a very dicey situation right now for him. And as uh, as Carl said, if he uh, if this thing all works out well, he could uh, become an extremely p- popular fellow with an awful lot of voters. But not does, inside then, the base. No, though. and if it doesn't work out and he and he uh, implodes, it could uh, it could be the a big crimp on a very uh, interesting career. So then all of a sudden now, Alan
5: Moore, we go back to Speaker Boehner. Does he invoke the Hastert rule on this? Or can he?
3: Well, <laughs> he said today that he will. So, you know, we, we don't know what the House has done yet. Or Excuse me, we, we, we don't have a Senate bill yet. Uh, if Reid... Talks about uh, invoking cloture, he's got to be careful because he can he can anger Republicans who say, wait a minute, you violated our understanding, which is we get we get uh, a, a certain number of well we get as many amendments as we want, and and he Reed has stepped in front of, of a particular amendment saying he thinks it's a deal killer that it's designed to be a poison pill, as it were. And that's a big problem for him, but also for Republicans, because the deal was we'll let this bill come up with the understanding that we get all the amendments that we want. That doesn't mean hundreds of amendments, but it means some of, these, some of these difficult uh, amendments. And if he, he's jumping in front to try to head off dealing with, uh, uh, I think it's the Cornyn, but but Cornyn is a moving target. It, you, you, they, they, they modify the language on border security. And the whole question is, and we talked about it a little bit last week, what
8: do,
3: what do you have to do in strengthening border security before these other things, uh, uh, the, the rights to the pathway to c- citizenship will occur? It's complicated. There's lots of differences of opinion. There's lots of ways ways to solve this. But the focus is still on the Senate behalf. The, the, the House and the Speaker's problems will emerge soon enough. And, the, and the, the exchange in the last day or two is just a reminder of how complicated his life is. But
5: Bob Hines, when, when we look, even on both sides, even in the Senate, you know, we've got people like Kelly Ayotte who says she will support the immigration bill. We have Marco Rubio, part of the Gang of Eight, that brought the immigration bill uh, to fruition. Are we starting to see now a more moderate sector of the Republican Party getting more and more visibility in people like Ayotte
9: and people like Rubio? Well, yes, you're seeing more of them because they are becoming spokespersons in in some extent with respect with the immigration bill. They're becoming part of the structure that's putting it together. So you're seeing them more often Maybe they would see some of the more conservative people uh, in the Senate on the Republican side, but that doesn't change the voting. That doesn't change the voting system at this point. I mean, there's still a majority of the Republicans who have great skeptical that they can vote for a bill. They 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 want to see more border uh, strengthening uh, at a very minimum, and I'm not sure what they might want beyond that. But uh, it's uh, it, you're seeing you're, you're you're listening more to the to the Moderates, because they're the ones who are out talking about the importance of the bill and how the bill does a number of, of, of reasonable things, uh, and doesn't, you know, doesn't just let everybody get in and get become a citizen tomorrow. It's a pretty, it's a, it, it's a, a 13-year run to become a citizen is a long time. It's not as though the, the bill says, "Come on in, you're a citizen tomorrow." And it's a pretty reasonable bill, but it's, it's still got a long way to go. But
5: hearing a lot of the Tea Party Republicans talking on, on the House side, Alan, understanding the fact we still don't have a bill going over to the other side, we're still hearing that that's a lot of money to be putting towards an immigration bill, particularly in a time we've got sequestration and uh,
3: we've got to take uh, certain financial controls. When the Tea Party has to start talking about the money, um, that means the other side is beginning to win here because first of all these numbers are all are all subject to to lots of challenge um, this is really about the concepts the so-called notion of, of amnesty of giving something to people who broke the law that that's that's the heart of it and then with uh, with an underpinning that is appealing to a lot of people of, of some uh, of presumably some level of racism that shows up in some places hard to know um, it's got to just play itself out, and no, there's no bill that everybody's going to like. There was talk in the Senate just a week or so ago that we're trying to get a bill that has a big majority, not just the 60 threshold, but 70 or so votes, and then a couple of days ago, Dick Durbin, uh, the, the the deputy leader uh, on the Democratic side, said, um, 60 is our target, so uh, they all know this is tough, but they know also that there's going to be people who vehemently oppose anything, and sometimes that'll be because that's how they believe, how they feel, and some of it will be matched to the politics of, of their particular situations. That's how it works. Call uh, so I
2: There was one report I heard on it. Somebody said if, if the Senate produces 70 votes for the bill, then the House will have to
3: do something do you agree with, with that, Alan Moore? The House will do something if it wants to do something, but it really has to do it really has to do with with the with where boehner where the where the this this bipartisan group are, where boehner thinks his people are if you have seventy votes though it's not the number that's important. It's the fact that that means a lot of Republicans came over and voted for it. So it's what the number symbolizes, not the number itself. Bob, that
9: is a key. I always said it exactly right. The larger the number in the Senate, the more likely it is that in the House there'll be legislation that it will move to the floor very, very uh, much more easily than otherwise. Uh, the closer the vote is in the Senate, the more difficult it becomes because the more Tea Party type folks in the House decide they can uh, they can step aside and not vote for it. So obviously, the, I think uh, the uh, with Mr. Durbin, uh, you know, saying 60, I think he's trying to uh, you know dampen down enthusiasms. But he, I'll make you bet he's still working on his. On colleagues that he knows on both sides of the aisle to make sure they're going to But I, I want to go back. I want to go back
5: to something that Alan said, though. Bob, I'm going to go to you on this. When when, when we look at, you know, the, the question of this is a racism issue. We don't like Mexicans. Uh, we we heard, we talked about this last week, but we see somebody like Ted Cruz out of Texas saying, "Look, this immigration bill does not work." Is is that type of Republican? the type of opponent we're going to see it saying this is... Are they displacing the idea that this is
9: not a racist issue? I certainly hope that Senator Cruz is in the great, great, great minority here. Because he is a pain in the ass, pardon my French. <laughs> He's just wrong, flat out wrong. It's, it, the, the Republican Party does not need to make any more voters angry at them than they have already. I well, like to, uh, and I don't mean that we should just, you know, do t- take our 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 view from what the with the liberal Democrats want. But the reality is, we need to do something to do to take to, to settle the question of immigration and 11 million illegal citizen people in this country, most of whom want to be citizens and they're good people and they're working people. Carl Tubman.
2: Senator Cruz is now more popular in Texas than Rick Perry is, and I think he is trying to talk to his Texas base, his fundraisers, and, and that. And I think that's what he's doing. Alan so, Moore.
3: You know, we, we do a disservice to people if we try to categorize them as uh, purely political, racist, um, principled. This is a complicated issue. There are legitimate prin- questions of principle on all sides. We did a major immigration reform bill in the early 1980s, lots of back-slapping, self-congratulatory messages, and people continue to flood across. And there's legitimate concern that what we do now is rewarding those very people that we thought in the early 80s we were going to keep out. That's not, a, that's not racist or illegitimate in its, on its face or in its own right. Having said that, I am perfectly willing to believe that in the way that people's minds work, the complicating aspects of what we do, what we think, how we talk, how we act, etc., that there is in some places with some people. Some element of racism, but I think it would be a disservice and unfair for us to say it 's all about racism it 's all about whatever it is for individual numbers and there are and there are people who are worried that even though they might feel themselves in one particular way if the politics are so powerful to to push them to another side they they will do that it It varies all over the country there are huge regional differences. Um, and and uh, it, it's 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 hard. It's complicated, and there is this underlying fairness question. And you know the unions are fit to be tied about what to do about this. They're they're, but they're on board with the chamber well, of commerce. They are on board, but without a, an enthusiasm, and there are divisions among the unions about whether whether union jobs are going to be at risk. I mean, there's you pick a group. And you'll find challenges that they're wrestling with uh, of all sorts. I think I think we just have to be careful of, and not characterize people as having a particular narrow uh, point of view simply because that's one of the issues that's part of it. Congressman, now, are we going
5: to see that immigration is going to be the one that maybe divides the Republican Party? We're seeing a little bit in the Senate. We're definitely going to see it in the House. Is this the subject that's going to make the GOP as a whole go, wait a minute, we got to step back and reevaluate.
4: I think we have to see whether there are going to be some Republicans in the House who are willing to take an unpopular vote uh, on, on, on principle. If there are enough of them to join the Democrats uh, so they can pass it, uh, then I think they probably uh, it will pass and they will save the Republican Party.
5: Does it take Marco Rubio falling on his own sword to do it?
4: Uh, It might. It could be. Uh, you, You know, Senator Jackson used to say that you can take one or two major issues and vote opposite of your constituency. No more than that. Because that's the only one, that's the number that you can actually get out and talk to your constituents about those two unpopular votes. If you have three or four or five, you're swung. Uh, If Rubio, uh, whose whose voting record I think otherwise should be fairly satisfactory to his constituency, can... uh, Into the party. Into the party. If he can uh, keep that base and explain why he did this convincingly, uh, he, he could possibly do that, be a hero, and survive.
5: Well, that's a Democratic perspective. I'm going to go to a Republican perspective. Bob Hines, does it take Marco Rubio falling on his sword?
9: I don't know that it takes him to uh, fall on his sword, but uh, I see that, I see Mr. Rubio as genuinely trying to solve this problem that he sees, as an Hispanic himself and he's trying to do it, and he is working, I guess, just about as hard. Probably no one has worked harder on this issue, I would say, in the last uh, six or eight months. Uh, and I think he's he's to be, uh, I think, uh, credited for that because he is obviously uh, doing something that a lot of Republicans are not eager to do. He's doing the right thing, I think. and uh, And let us hope that let us hope that a man uh, who is as, uh, as dedicated uh, to trying to solve the problem is destroyed because he tried to tried to, dis- to fix the problem.
5: Culture being somewhat imminent aside, Carl Tobin, does the immigration bill pass the Senate? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Alan Moore? I think so, yeah. Bob Hines? Yes. Al Swift? Yes. Correct answer is yes. Alright, when we come back, it's our free-for-all, the last last half hour here on Backroom Politics, where we talk about anything that comes up and tell me a story. We'll be back in three minutes. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelly's Backroom for its corporate events, its happy hours, its famous campfire wings and spurt cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelley's is open during the weekend too. In fact, Shelley's back room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelly's cigar environment. Also, during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Backroom, it's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Back Politics. Backroom Politics.
8: Talk with all by myself. No one to walk with, but I'm happy on the elevation on the shelf. Ain't misbehaving, saving my love for you and you, especially you. yeah I know for certain the one I love. I'm through it flirtin with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Place to go I'm home about eight at my little radio and misbehaving saving my love for you for you, for you yes you all oh, my love for you yes, that's what I'm talking
5: about, and we're back here live in Chile's back room thirteen thirty one street in the harbor of our nation's capital. This is Backroom politics live from Shelly's room, 1331 Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington. I D.C. think we've said that several we're times. On, we're on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, it's our last half hour. We've already had our drink, our cigars. We get to talk about anything that comes to mind. The thing that's coming to mind with me is, um, so, you're Robert Kraft. You're the owner of the Patriots. You meet Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. You show him a Super Bowl ring. The president of Russia takes the Super Bowl ring. FSB agents circle you. President Russia walks off with your ring. How bizarre is this, Alan?
3: Well, it, it reminded me once when I was the, the the staff director of the Senate Commerce Committee, and 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 Bart Starr, the famous uh, Green Bay Packers quarterback, was in the office for for some reason. I don't remember the issue. Might have been the expansion of the NFL or some, something that was an issue back then. And he was wearing a big Super Bowl ring. Now, it wasn't this humongous
5: Buick,
3: Buick on your finger that they make now. It was just a small little Volkswagen. Um, it was a big old ring, and, I, uh, and he was not that big a man. And I said, wow, is that your ring? Can I try it on? And he handed it over, and I put it on. And I'm trying to imagine me then putting it in my pocket. First of all, he would have kicked my ass right on the spot. <laughs> so it, show. it was just not going to happen. So I'm trying to imagine how this thing happened. And Kraft must have thought this is all in jest. And gee, I don't want to create an international incident. What I don't understand, though, is how when they walked out, the next thing that apparently occurred was he said a little note to Putin no doubt with the encouragement of the U.S. government, and he has said as much, saying, you know, I thought you might like that as a as a souvenir and as a symbol of our friendship. Well, this was years ago this happened, and then just the other day he starts talking about this, saying Putin stole my ring. Well, the ring is on display, apparently, at the Moscow Library, sort of this thing, and the Russians seem to me to have a bit of, a, of, of, of an argument saying, wait a minute, you gave it to him. This is, we didn't steal anything, we, so, we gave it to him. It's really strange, but really kind of fun and it, funny. It is funny.
5: So, Bob, you're working the Russian desk at State Department in Foggy Bottom. Do you just go, oh, crap, or do you just let it go and say, Mr. Crap, thank you, God bless you? And you get a you get a night in the White House.
9: Yes. Now, what I say is, uh, Mr. Kraft, why don't you talk to the uh, commissioner and have him uh, authorize another another rank? That's what okay. I do. Wow,
5: you are wow. I was hoping you'd go something big. You give me nothing, man. Nothing. <laughs> hey, that's okay. I expect that from Congressman Al for crying out Listen, loud. Listen, there's no
9: there's no. This, this, this is not something they should even be discussing. Why not? No, this is an inter- I don't. This think is an international team. We're
5: talking about the New England Patriots here, Robert. I know. And
9: I think that. America's team. Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on now. That's, that, <laughs> hey, uh, that's that's number that's one, that ain't case. never going to be true. <laughs> <laughs> so you say. So you say, Carl Dubin? Two things.
2: First of all, the Patriots, if there are ever any exhibition games in uh, Moscow, the Patriots probably will not be invited. <laughs> Number one. What are you talking
5: about? Are you kidding? No. Putin's got a Super Bowl ring.
2: Number two, <laughs> Number two. I want to find out, or I want to do some research, and find out whether Kraft is a Democrat or a Republican.
5: Uh, he, he
6: uh,
5: might are you now. really thinking there's political spin in this?
2: No, no. There could be a political spin in everything. I mean, you know, who knows? Carl, you could be the
5: ultimate political conspirator, then. <laughs> Carl, go do the research. Don't tell us what you're going to do. Do it. Do it, no, yeah.
2: I will. Find out.
3: Yeah, no. and yeah, I'm the one with the computer. But, so, uh, but in, terms yeah. of, in terms of Bob's suggestion, I think, that's, I think that that's exactly what Kraft has done. He said, look, I'll get you a copy. But that one was mine. It's got my name engraved in it. It means something special to me. We'll get you one. Get these you things one. cost probably twenty five grand. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're filled with diamonds. I that. What, what I don't yeah, get is why yeah. out of the blue, after all these years and after a note saying it's yours, hey, enjoy. suddenly he's out talking about it in some private event, and now it's in That's the news that we're talking strong. about. It.
2: Congressman Al.
4: But he'd be the only guy who ever got two of those. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that would
2: be... He's he's the owner.
4: He's buying them.
3: Good point. Good point. He He can buy all that he wants.
2: You don't need Um, need to be authorized by the commissioner.
9: Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I have no idea. But the point is, you know, listen, you know, he can get another one, right. and he can send you this one. And he say he sent this one to Poop. Say you send me to one my name in it. I'll send you the and I'll send you this. One. I mean, this is the we, kind of thing that never should have been
5: public. Uh, we have to announce this on the air, ladies and gentlemen. The chairman of the GOP of D.C., Ron Phillips, has joined us. Mr. chairman. Mr. Chairman, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, there you go. See, I have my zero? I earned my <laughs> keep today. <laughs> I earned my keep today. Hey, um, the other, the other the other thing that keeps coming up is. Uh, Now, all of a sudden, PRISM, the NSA supercomputer, save the world, turn poop into cinnamon rolls computer, is now back in the spotlight. You've got the head of the NSA now talking about how PRISM stopped Times Square, stock exchange attack, etc. This is a story that keeps on giving. Bob Hines is this thing really going to have a lot of legs as we go down inside the, into an election cycle, whether it's midterm or into
9: 2016? Well, I guess it, to some degree, it depends if there are new informations that come out that, that titillate, if you will. It sounds to me like we've, ha- we've heard an awful lot from NSA leadership, uh Na- the national security guy, what, what, or Kup- Clipper, Clipper, what's his name, whatever, I'm sorry, I don't know his name. Cl- Clipper. Clipper, yes. yeah. Yeah, so he, it's been a number of senior members who have never wanted to testify, but they have come before Congress and they have spoken very openly about what the program is and what it does and what it has done. Now, it seems to me that when you, have a, when you have a situation where one administration, which is of one party, adopts it, after a major problem. The, another party, the other party, the Democrats, reauthorize it and extend it when they're in power. Vote, that means that the Congress twice has had a chance to take a hard look at this, when it sometime it was Republican control, sometime Democrats, and it's approved it. Seems to me the program is a good program. There probably, I'm sure, a lot of people who wish it hadn't come out. Now it has. If for no other, it, you know, and I think maybe in some sense, the American people seem to be comfortable with the program as they understand it today. They didn't affect all the telephone calls and this stuff isn't being read, I mean, or being heard. It's just a matter of who's talking to who and things like that. And then you got to go farther to the court to get anything else in, of, of, of broad information. So it seems to me that it's not that big a story going forward. But, Alan Moore, it, it, it looks like
5: Obama. Doesn't know which way to kind of pivot on this subject. He's on Charlie Rose saying, "I'm no Dick Cheney," but he's also on Charlie Rose saying, that, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm using that Bush stuff. That stuff's cool. Can
3: he can he win in this argument right now?" He, he's having trouble winning here because he was Mr. Transparency and uh, and Mr. <laughs> what is this? Uh, uh, non-permissive invasion of privacy, and it turns out that he's not been transparent, and that he's got a program partly because of technology that's far bigger than, mm-hmm. than than what was than what Bush was doing. Simply because the technology now allows it. What what what's really painful for the the intelligence community and national security community is that now the world is kind of in on some of what we were doing and and we start talking about how now 50 different uh, terrorism plots were thwarted because of the, the, the use of this program. They and also, say, by the way,
5: it's not just us.
3: GCHQ, the British equivalent of NSA, well, they've been doing it too. They've, you know, they've identified a few examples, but the more examples they identify and they don't want to identify them is more clues to what exactly they were getting and what they were looking at. In the meantime, all of Silicon Valley, because... Uh, People conflate. They think every phone call and every email is somehow in this massive system. Not true. Every phone call is in the system, but it's a phone call. It's information. The the metadata about about what phone number called, what other phone number, for how long, on what day. That's what we've got. There's no content involved in terms of all of the 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 email, the Gmail, the the, the, the Facebook, all the internet stuff. That is simply an acknowledgement of our ability to ask for specific information and some of these firms Apple, Facebook to name two, have said we have fielded a few thousand requests under court order in the last several years out of in effect billions and billions of communications but every time that we're asked it has to be very specific; it has to be under a, under a, a, a court order. And now, as we re- slowly absorb all of this, it doesn't seem so massive. Which doesn't mean there won't be people yelling and screaming and and throwing out charges. James Clapper, the the the, 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 the director of national intelligence, who is, is being accused of lying, and he he did use uh, just wrong words to describe what happened, and he is still going to be on the hot seat. Congressman Al,
4: I think that. The American people have grown up a lot since the days of Gary Powers. Remember him? Yeah, the U-2 pilot. Yeah, shot down over Russia. I I was in high school, and and I wasn't born. Daddy Eisenhower, you know, everybody's father figure, uh, was responsible for it, and it was very embarrassing the administration. There was a lot of explanation. We were spying. Was the United States spying? Do we spy? You know, that was kind of the national reaction. You're not getting that now. now. Uh, We're much more sophisticated about what's uh, necessary and what we're doing and and so forth. So I, I think that this will, first of all, the administration, whom we love on this program to say what they're doing wrong, I think that the intelligence agencies have been making very strong, good points about what they're doing. They're not
6: BSing
4: anybody. They're laying it out and they're defending it on rational terms. And I think the American public will hear that. Uh, I think there is a problem here that is best examined by. Uh, by committees of Congress that are kind of sworn to secrecy, this is the Security Committee, what have you, because uh, this could get out of control. I don't see any evidence that it is yet out of control, and we want to be sure that there, there are things in place to keep it from getting out of control, but I don't think this is going to be something that's going to keep uh, most Americans awake at night.
2: Uh, in the
5: long run. Congressman now why why got you on the uh on, on the microphone here? Uh one of the things that happened last week, kind of a page six side item. <laughs> for those <laughs> of you out there who don't know what page six is, it's kind of a tabloid portion of the New York Post, which is a tabloid into itself. But on a page six note, Michelle Bachman's not running for re-election. Is Washington DC gonna miss Michelle Bachman? Congressman Al.
4: The cartoonists will. Saturday Night Live will. Uh, a bunch of people like that will. The, the ultra-right wing of the party will. Uh, but she won't because she's going to make a lot of money. I mean, she watched the former governor of Alaska, and she said, that's the way to go. She ha- obviously had nowhere up to go. She, her career in Congress was killed. And so uh, she's going to go off and make money. And Carl Thuben.
2: Well, you know, we might might lose Michelle Bachman, but we're going to get Sarah Palin back. Evidently, she is. She's back on Fox. She's back on Fox. Amazing. So, you know, you're going to have that going on over again.
4: She's not the problem. Fox is the problem.
5: (laughs) Alan, are we going to miss Michelle Bachman in Washington?
3: You know, I talked about uh, the 10th anniversary of Far earlier. I'm thinking that we will uh, we will miss Michelle Bachman like we will miss a sexually transmitted infection. Uh, it's
5: a family show. He
4: never said a bad word. It's a family show. <laughs> said said right right uh,
5: that's that's
3: that's
4: sexual. Said sexual. Said sexual. How do you think families? Yeah, come about. Yeah. If I
3: wanted, if if I if I had said STI, you guys, some some people around this table would have said, "What's that?"
4: Yeah. So, Are you looking at me when you said that? Just make no. it a all statement. Okay, you Just probably know. I do, I do know. I do know.
0: I do know.
5: Carl's an I'm getting, and by the way, I'm getting some weird looks from the sidelines right now. <laughs> hey, um. Also, you know what we didn't talk about today is we didn't talk about Joe Biden. Had another bi weekly Joe Biden gun summit uh, where he talked about the success of gun control, yet we still don't see a gun control bill. Congressman Al, how does Joe Biden claim success in gun control when we don't have
4: a gun control bill? Because he's Joe Biden. Good
5: point. <laughs> Enough said. Alan Moore? You
3: know, Al said it huh? all. said it all. You know, this issue isn't done. No. And Biden is a believer, so, uh, and, and Joe Mankin uh, from West Virginia, uh, who put his neck out on the line with his uh, NRA uh, followers and voters, uh, is now uh, getting ready to go on the air and, and talk about uh, background checks and why he thinks they're important. So, uh, these and I think people like Kelly Out who got hammered and could easily get hammered again, they were all great beneficiaries of the, uh, of the double shitstorm sandwich that hit the White House
5: family show. Uh, My God.
3: With, uh, with all the scandals because it pushed uh, it pushed uh, gun background checks into the background, but uh, it'll come back. Hmm.
4: And Joe Biden will be one of those who helped I, make it. I wish to, to now. Out I wish to point out that I am probably among this whole group, I am probably the person that is the most foul-mouthed and indiscreet member. Hear, hear. Right. I'll agree with that. I, I, on the air, I have, I am. My my reputation is being destroyed, largely by Alan, but also by Bob. Well, Bob and, drops
5: one F bomb, forget it. Others, <laughs> you
4: know, I'm I'm not even in this game anymore. You know, Carl Tubin.
2: I think Joe Biden is trying to keep this issue alive, and he's doing it. His, uh, his state of Delaware passed a uh, a bill. Which has background checks, and uh, Bo Biden was on TV uh, last night, or the night before, talking about what they did in uh, Delaware. So I think all this is per- precursor to bringing the bill back up. And Mansion is is yeah they're I, it.
9: They're all fighting it. And they're all I, trying I to defend others. Mind. I think the Senate's going to have the bill on the floor probably. Uh, huh. Be you know, let's say I don't think it be before the recess but I make I make a bet it comes up before the, the den- gun bill comes up for a vote again. Yeah, I think it comes up before they get to debt ceiling and budget, because that will blow everything just, up. And just out of curiosity, <laughs>
5: and it'll pass.
9: Yes, it will. Okay,
5: first of all, you're don't supposed take... to be drinking water. You're cut off. Bob <laughs> Hines, why don't they stop making moonshine in red colors? You're cut off. You're don't, both drunk. Don't, oh, don't, my
3: God. Don't, don't take the bet, because you'll win, <laughs> and they'll never pay. Let, <laughs> yes, let, right. Let, let, us
9: all the, let us all the people he called drunks remove him. That's right. Yes. <laughs>
5: Can't do it My show. Hey,
9: well, uh, we leave this no show. <laughs> I'll do this solo,
5: damn it. Oh, wait. oh, crap, I said something bad. about oh, it.
8: There, we got him. Oh, oh. We finally got him. Yeah. Gosh darn it. Gosh darn it. Hey, hey, it
5: worked, guys. Congressman
4: Al. I want to uh, change the subject, and, and maybe maybe this is starting. Uh, uh, well,
5: let me, let me start. Let me enter into our. Okay. Do it. This is a part of the show. we got 10 minutes left. This is a part of our show called Tell Me a Story, where we talk about the buzz, innuendo, rumor going around. Hopefully, we scoop some of the major news organizations. Or sometimes just a shameless plug or reminiscing. Uh, but this is Tell Me a Story. Congressman Now Tell Me a Story. When I
4: was elected, I was wondering if there would be any giants left in Congress. Uh, I, I grew up with Sam Rayburn and names like that, and I didn't know. Little did I realize that by the time my, my political career ended, I would be a, a friend, a true friend of one, of one of the real giants, who was honored last Thursday. Uh, in a ceremony uh, in the Statuary Hall in the Capitol. His name is John Dingle, and he was honored because he has served longer than any other member of Congress ever in the history of the Congress. <clears throat> and he, his reputation is not based on just having survived that long, but having been a very great congressman. Who do I quote on that? Well, uh, the the fellow that replaced him when the Republicans took over as chairman of the committee has publicly said that John Dingell was one of the ten greatest congressmen in the United States. And he said, I don't mean just now. I mean in history. Thursday, they not only honored him, but the reason I'm bringing this up is because it was done with such grace by the Republicans at a time when Republicans and Democrats have very little respect for each other, apparently, at least with some of the people. Uh, the Speaker was gracious beyond belief uh, in introducing him. The Vice President spoke, uh, and, and and so forth and so on. The fact is that, that it was announced that the room in which John Dingle has operated as chairman and as ranking member for and member for, for, for virtually all of the 50 some years he's been in Congress room 21, 21. 23, 21. 23 in, in, uh, Rayburn, Rayburn building is being named the John Dingle John D Dingle room who proposed that Joe Barton who was the fellow who became chairman of the committee when the Republicans took over, and Fred Upton, who is the current Republican chairman of the committee. Those two Republicans posed this to the speaker, who's a Republican, and they all agreed that it should be done. And after the service, I, 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 I approached both of them and told them I thought it was an enormously gracious thing for them to do, and Joe Barton said I wanted to do it when I was chairman of the committee, and then they had the election, and the Democrats took over, and I didn't get a chance. So he said I, I jumped on it. It was Dingle spoke and talked very graciously about the Congress and about the Republicans, expressing the need for there to be more collegial activity than there was. But he he didn't he didn't do an attack on the on the Tea Party or anything, he just said that we kind of got out of kilter here and we need to get back to it. It was uh, a remarkable example of how Congress used to work and still can if it is given the opportunity and the right leadership, and in this case the leadership was the Speaker, and Joe Barton, who was about as conservative as you can get in the old terms of what conservative meant. And uh, Brett Upton was a little more moderate, but still a Republican. I was proud and privileged to be there, uh, but I was just so amazed at how honest the graciousness of the Speaker and the Republicans were. In that instance, in honoring John. And I know I've gone on too long, but with a little problem, No, no, I, it's, I, it's, I could start telling John Dingell's stories. So no, we'll, we'll, do do that, we'll do that when
5: we have Congressman Dingell on. Uh, no, well deserved. No question about it. We're positive that, hey, we can get along. We can do work together. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Five minutes left. Five minutes left. Uh,
9: I am not, we've, we've already uh, talked enough about. Um, the immigration and the effort of mr uh, of Mr. Senator Rubio, which I, who I think is, is showing great uh, courage in what he's doing and trying to solve a problem which is uh, which, which is a difficult one, and he's working very hard and he's a lover the Tea Party loves him, but uh, you know he's doing things that maybe they don't love, but he's doing the right thing. But I want to follow up on something what, what John said, I'll be quick. As a Republican who dealt uh, constantly when I was working with NBC, with the, with the Commerce Committee, with Al Swift, my dear partner here, and uh, with John Dingell, uh, I have to say and repeat everything Al said. He, John Dingell is one of the greatest legislators, I think, in the history of the United States Congress. He found ways to get things done that were fantastic. He did things that were difficult, he, he was And he was fair, he was honest, he was open. I don't think I ever had a, uh, a time when I dealt with Dingle that I didn't think he was doing everything exactly the way it should be done. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't always uh, get everything I wanted, and I certainly didn't deserve it sometimes. But I was still asking for it, and John did everything he could to be helpful and to find a solution to the problems that I brought to him. And I admire the man before, I guess, before almost any member of Congress I have ever worked with. Still want him on the show. Would love to do that interview.
5: Uh, Alan Moore, three minutes left, tell me a story. Yeah,
3: so so uh, with all of this stuff that's going on in the White House, uh, there one wonders, has anybody won anything out of all of this? Well, only people who were involved in some kind of a disastrous scandal. And right here in the Washington, D.C. area, we have got... Uh, uh, various candidates. We got Governor McConnell of Virginia, who it McDonald, to, uh, McDonald uh, excuse me, McDonald from Virginia, who has uh, who has had a very cozy relationship with some of his supporters and financiers, and who came up with a fifteen thousand dollar gift to his daughter to pay for the catering at her wedding, and has provide has taken the gifts of uh, of vacations and even uh, put some. Small household expenses onto the governor 's account, uh, disastrous stuff for him and any uh, any potential future he may have. not clear that it violates the law in Virginia, which suggests that the law is an ass in Virginia in the same time across the the river in in Maryland, we got Governor o 'Malley, the latest huge scandal for 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 Maryland and to some extent for the governor is that the the disaster in the jail in Baltimore oh. where the criminals were in charge and the best way to think about this is that the single one guy who was most in charge impregnated not one guard not two guards not three guards <laughs> he impregnated four female guards inside the prison and and, oh, Carl Newman's saying it sounds well. Sick. I maybe it's more, but but uh, it, it's like, what could you possibly be, be talking about? And this is not a brand new issue. Finally, here in the D.C. area, you've got the D.C. Council of Shame—three, <laughs> three, <laughs> three and
9: members, founding.
3: three members who have been charged with felonies and cut deals and are no longer in in the council. And Mary and Mary, the gift that keeps on giving, seconds. who took uh, $7,000 in cash, reported it on his form, and won't have, answer questions. we got big problems here locally. When we're talking about all the great stuff state and local governments are going to do, let's remember they're not always on the top of their game. Carl
2: in a minute left. Real quick. Um, uh, there was a, 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 when Putin and, and uh, the president okay. came out and had a press conference, president said uh, he talked about uh, sports stuff and he said my basketball is declining and uh, Putin looked up and said I think he's trying to make me relax and that little interchange I think shows not Cold War coming back like some people have suggested but maybe there's a little spark there that uh,
5: uh, could grow into something positive. Now, on the, well, I, all I know is Treasury is now displaying the new Jack Lou signature. I want a Jack Lou original. They're, they're really neat, scribbly, little circles. I want a Jack Lou original. On behalf of Congressman Al, Bob Hines, uh, Denise Krepp, Alan Moore, and Carl Tubman. I'm the moderator, Justin Russell. We'll see you next week. Have a great week, Washington. Bye-bye.